You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Father, thank you so much for the power of your word, and thank you so much for the message of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Thank you, Father, that we can hear your voice from heaven speaking to us, your children, and calling those who are not yet your children to become your children. Thank you for that voice that we hear through the work of your spirit as Paul authored this letter. And God, we pray today that you would help our hearts and our minds just see, to behold, and to comprehend the greatness of the gift that you have given us in Christ Jesus. Pray, O Lord, that you would radically change lives and encourage people. Lord, I ask that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and that you would cause them to bring you glory and honor and use them to help your people. In Jesus' name, and everybody said. I ask a question this morning to get us rolling. I want to ask you this. What was the best gift you've ever received? Think about all the gifts you could have possibly gotten in your life. What is the best gift you've ever received? Now, I'm not asking for the Christian answer because everybody wants to say Jesus because we're in church, okay? So just hold off on that answer. It's a good answer. I'm not rebuking you. I did mention this uh, over the weekend at a men's camp out, and they were like, what do you want then, the demonic answer? No. Gosh, not what I'm saying. Just, just for a minute, just don't get really religious with your answer. That's all I'm saying, okay? So... What's the greatest gift you've ever received? For me, I've received a few. One that I thought of yesterday was a motorcycle that my wife bought me years ago. It was a super huge surprise. Didn't know that she had bought it for me. Just knew that it was in my garage. I thought I was storing it for a buddy of mine. Then suddenly my wife goes, hey, here's the key. I bought it for you. I'm like, whoa, pretty cool gift, right? Uh, Another gift that I received uh, was marrying off one of my daughters over the summertime. (laughs) She got married, and and, uh, during the the father-daughter dance, um, I mean, the whole thing, I was a wreck anyways, emotionally. And if you're a dad in the room, then you understand what that might be like as you contemplate that. Or if you have done that, you know how tough that is. Um, but as we did the father, father-daughter dance, I'm an emotional wreck as we're up there. And she, uh, she just goes, hey, daddy, I, uh, I made a list of things that I wanted to say to you that you have done for me all of my life. And it, it moved me. She, for the rest of that dance, just told me all the things I had modeled into her. And when I look at myself, I don't think I'm that great of a dad most of the time. I think of all the negative things, the times I lost my temper, and the times I got angry and mad, right? And the times I wasn't there when I should have been there, but she made this list. What a gift that she gave me that day. What kind of gifts have you received in your life that have moved you that way? Gifts that you have received that still today you think about, that have even in some ways radically changed your life, right? Or in some ways moved you so deeply that you just wanted to tell everybody about that gift that you received. Do you remember how life-changing it felt to receive that gift? That's, that, that happens in a person who um, understands. This is what happens in a person who um, who receives for the first time the free gift of salvation. That's the way a person feels when they realize that the the gift of salvation is given to them by God's free grace and it is received through the pipeline of faith. 
That's that's really the big statement for today's sermon that I want you to remember. The gift of salvation is given to us by God's free grace, and it is received through the pipeline of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Love this passage. My plan today, this will shock some of you, and for others of you, you'll just laugh, and Steph already knows what's going on because I let her in, uh, her and Bryce both. Um, My plan today is to camp out in the first, count them, nine words of these verses that we've just read. Nine words, nine glorious words that say this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Man, you may not get the joy when I read those words that I get. By grace you have been saved through faith. These nine words, when contemplated, when digested, when moved from the space of the head in our thinking into the space of our heart where the desires and the affections and the longings are, then translate out into the space of our hands, our behavior, the way that we live our lives. It changes our lives radically. We're going to do as we examine these nine words this morning. We're going to highlight three of those nine words to help us understand and remember, praying that you arrived at the same place that I did when studying this. I want to highlight three of those nine words for us. Those three words are the word for and the word grace and the word faith. Nine words distilled into three words that communicate this one overarching thought, that the the gift of salvation is given to us by God's free grace, and it is received through the pipeline of faith. Number one, the gift of salvation is tied to the word for. If I hand out in front of you, you can fill in the blanks as you would like. All along on the screen, number one, the gift of salvation is tied to the word for. And you might be asking, Why is the word for so important? Here's my argument. I would argue that this word, this one word is important in this list of nine because it acts like a bread sack twist tie. Get that image in your head for a minute. It acts like a bread sack twist tie in that what it does is it, it ties together the bread sack of the entire doctrine of salvation that Paul is giving to us in these verses. The word for, if you think about the word for, if you understand grammar a little bit and and even the English language, the word for is a joining word, kind of like the word therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore, you go, what's it there for? And you look back previously to the word therefore and figure out why it's there. It's the same with the word for. It's a joining word. It literally joins together two flows of thought and makes them into one. So you get one flow of thought here, one flow of thought here. you got to have a bridge to divide it, right? To connect it, not divide it, but to bridge the gap of the divide there. There's the words I was looking for. So you have one flow of thought here and one flow of thought here, and right smack dab in the center is the word for. Super important because it ties some thoughts together into one. Let me show you what I mean. 
last week in verses 1 through 7. We studied that, right? And then all of us studied that in our gospel communities throughout the week. And here's what we learned. We learned last week that we once were spiritually dead, but now we are alive. That was the big idea, right? We once were spiritually dead. I, I was dead in my old lifestyle of sin. I was dead when I followed the way of the world. I was dead when I followed Satan. I was dead when I lived according to my fleshly desires. I was dead when I was a child of wrath. I was dead when I was no different, just like the rest of humanity. I was dead at one point. And then we also learned last week in those first seven verses that when a person becomes a Christian, they come alive for the very first time, right? They once were spiritually dead, but now they are alive. That's the big first thought, right? Now I am alive because of God's rich mercy. Now I am alive because of God's great love. Now I am alive because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now I'm alive because God's grace has saved me. Now I am alive because God has positioned me with Christ and because God has chosen to reveal himself to me, I am now alive. So I once was dead but now I'm alive. And then this is where the word for in verse eight comes into play, right? Look back at your Bibles. This is where the word for comes in. It becomes important because it ties that first thought that we once were spiritually dead, but now we are alive to Paul's second thought in verses eight through 10, of which we're only gonna spend time looking at those nine words in the first portion of verse eight. But that second thought is that the gift of salvation is given to us by God's free grace and is received through the pipeline of faith. So put all this together into one thought. If I can just continue to kind of belabor it for a minute. Put it all into one clear personal thought for a believer. If you are a believer, then what you can say along with the Apostle Paul and along with me this morning is you can say this one clear thought. I once was spiritually dead, but now I'm alive for the gift of salvation has been given to me by God's free grace through the pipeline of faith. Preach that to yourself every morning. The word for, the word for is unique in that it acts like a bread sack twist tie, right? That connects those two super important theological thoughts into one in regards to the doctrine of salvation. The gift of salvation is tied intrinsically to the word for. Number two, second word is grace, right? Second word is grace that we're boiling and bubbling these nine words up into. And inevitably, somebody's always going to say this. You, know, you said you're going to preach on nine words, but you use like 3,000 and some odd words. What is the deal? I don't know. <laughs> Number two, the gift of salvation is given to us by God's free grace. See, Paul says in verse eight that by grace you have been saved. This doctrine of grace is like the best meal. Everybody breathe deep right now. Smell the food, right? Just let those senses kind of overwhelm you for a moment. This doctrine of grace is just like that. The best meal you've ever dreamed of consuming. How excited are some of you to eat some food here in a little bit, right? That's what the doctrine of grace does for the believer. It reminds us how satisfying God's grace is for us. Christian, for the Christian, the truth of free grace or unmerited favor, or unearned kindness. These are all different ways you can say it. This is the doctrine that, that makes salvation so unbelievably good, so unbelievably tasty. When I, when I think about how evil I've been, 
you can do the same with me for a minute, right? When, when we think about how evil we have been, not just five years ago, but for some of us and for me, five minutes ago, right? Think about how evil we have been, how hopeless my life was before meeting the face of grace in Jesus Christ. I, I'm left speechless. Aren't you? Why would the person whom I have made to be my enemy become my savior? Why would the person whom I've made to be my enemy become my savior? Why would Jesus go to the cross for me? Why would he give himself freely on my behalf? The answer is compelling, to say the least. The answer can be frightening if you digest it. Jesus went to the cross for me so that he could become the embodiment of God's grace to me. This is compelling and it's even frightening at times because it's an audacious act of generosity. It seems stupid to my human ability to reason or to make sense of it. I don't know anyone who is completely free other than Jesus. I don't know anyone who is completely free from a selfish or sinful motive other than Jesus. And in my mind, I think that if I was completely free from the restraint and the influence and the infection of my own sinful and selfish motives. If I, if I could do anything that I wanted to do, the last thing that I think that I would do is give myself away as entirely or as horrifically or as sacrificially as Jesus did at the cross. You, you may be here and you may be struggling with understanding how deeply sinful you have been. Think about this in terms of someone that would be your greatest enemy right now. What could that person have done to you or to your family that would cause them to be your greatest enemy? Now think about if you had every resource available to your fingertips, what you would do to that person. Jesus went to the cross for that person. And the truth is, that person is me, and that person is you. When I give myself away sacrificially, deep down inside, I'm, I'm always struggling with wondering what the payoff will be when I give myself away. This is part of the sin that I struggle with sometimes. I, I struggle with 
wondering what I will get in return for my sacrifice or what the reward will be or what the, the payoff will be. And it's natural, I think, for every one of us to ask these questions like, hey, what's the payoff for my sacrifice going to be? Is this sacrifice going to be a wise investment? Will there be a return or a desired result from my investment? When I give this gift, when I give myself to this pursuit or to this other person, will it actually help? Or will it actually promote some good? Or will it just simply enable something harmful to continue happening? In some ways, these questions aren't just sinful questions because they really aren't. It could be motivated by sin, yes. Questions are actually good questions. They're simply wise management investment questions, right? Important to count the cost before giving myself away. It's really the same with God. Even though on the surface God's grace looks absolutely foolish. Truth is when God poured out his free grace upon you and I, What I believe is that Jesus went to that cross knowing exactly who he was purchasing out of the whorehouse of our sinful pleasures. That's what he did. He knew who he was pursuing. He knew who he was paying for. And he knew exactly who his blood was going to purchase. I believe Jesus knew exactly whom he was dying for. He knew the names of people who were the children of wrath that would one day become children of God by grace. He knew my sin. He knew my failures. He knew my cowardly ways. He he knew that, yet he became the payment for my warfare against him so that I could become what? His possession twice Owed by the God of grace. That's grace, my friends. That's grace. Oh, I pray that that would get a hold of your heart. The gift of salvation is given to us by free grace. And number three, the gift of salvation is given to us through the pipeline of faith. We are going to spend the majority of our time on this word. Get the salvation is given to us through the pipeline of faith. The Apostle Paul says, you have been saved through faith. And if it is by God's grace that we are saved, and if it is through faith that we receive the gift of salvation, then the question that we have to ask is, what is faith? It's not just my daughter sitting in the front row. What is faith? What is this faith that becomes the pipeline for God's free gift of grace that then saves me? And how do I get it? Right? What is it? How do I get me some of that? I'm a hard worker. I say that with no pride. The reason I'm a hard worker is because I have pride. My mom raised me to be a hard worker. Therefore, I become an overworker. That flows out of my pride in thinking that I can work enough to get this done. I can work enough to produce. Don't hear me wrong. There are some of you in the room that don't struggle like I do. Your struggle with pride is that you are lazy. (laughs) And you need to probably get off your butt and I need to sit down. Okay? So, so pride is the root of our sin. And for me, one of, my, one of my hardest 
difficult, longest lasting sins I struggle with is, is, is being a hard worker and, and, and in fact, an overworker. It's ingrained in me. I struggle with doing nothing because I love to be doing something. I grew up in this little old white farmhouse uh, out in the country. We heat our house with a wood-burning stove. We trimmed our yard with machetes and scissors and sickles instead of lawnmowers and trimmers. We baled our own hay for the livestock. We split our own firewood with axes until midnight under the moon with lights. We worked from before sunup until long after sundown most days of the year. And we produced a ton of tangible results from our hard labor. This is the way I grew up. It's ingrained in me. It's natural for me then when I think of this concept of God's free grace coming down through the pipeline of faith. It's natural for me to just start thinking that I need to work harder to get me some more of that free grace. I want someone to tell me where the faith worker line begins. I want to know where the faith worker line begins so that I can get to the front of that line so that, so, so that I can work my tail off all week to earn what is being given away freely to me. Isn't this insanity? Doesn't it sound silly? How could I be so silly as to think that I need to work hard to produce the kind of faith that pipes in God's free grace? Kind of silly thinking in this silly behavior. It's almost so under the radar for us, right? It's so under the radar that it's easy for us to miss it in our daily lives. How often have you heard somebody say this? How often have you heard somebody say, hey, you just got to have a little more faith? Oh, really? I just got to have a little more faith. Oh, 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 I understand. I get it. Oh, thank you for sharing that with me, brother or sister. I just got to have a little more faith. Where do I get me some more of that? Where do I go and create it? Where do I, how do I get that? What do I got to do to get it? Isn't that what we think? Think about it for a minute. Think about the way you pray about faith, though. You don't pray about faith that way, do you? You don't pray, God, help me go get some faith like it depends on you to get that faith, do you? I don't, even though I live it differently. Never pray. We never pray, Lord, Lord, please help me to just like pull up the bootstraps of my faith and just get on with this hard thing I'm trying to walk through. We don't pray that way. We don't pray that God would help us to work harder at earning our faith, earning our grace. We're earning our salvation, even though we often live like we can earn it. I think we do that because we fail to understand what faith actually is. What we actually pray is, Lord, please give me some faith. Why do we pray that way? Because intrinsically we know that faith is a gift from God, and any theologian that tells you any different needs to go back and read his Bible a little bit more. God, give me some more faith. So what is it? What is this thing we're talking about, right? Can I get it? Joe, you, I can't go work for it. I can't really go like, grab it and stick it in my bucket so I have more later. can't freeze it in the freezer so I can have some tonight. What, what do I do? I can't create it. I can't make it. I can't earn it. I can't produce it myself. It's a gift from God so I can ask him for it. That's good. Thank you. What is it? 
Good question. Glad you asked. What is this faith that Paul speaks of that acts like the pipeline for God's grace that saves us from the penalty of our sin? We take one stab at it this way. One scholar. One scholar. And she, she Zoe. <laughs> so, so Zoe's been competing with me the whole time, and now Steph is snorting. So... <laughs> Catch this. What is faith? One, one scholar says it this way. Um, he's trying to explain faith. He says this. Says, faith is only as authentic and as strong as the object in which it is placed in. Faith is only as authentic and as strong as the, the object in which it is faith in. So, so the object of faith, the object of faith, we're still talking about faith, but the object of faith defines the authenticity and the power of faith. That same scholar explains it this way. Listen close. If you need to close your eyes and put your thinking cap on so you can envision this, do so. Imagine a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Tightrope walker walking on that tightrope above Niagara Falls. He walks all the way across safely. Next, he rides a bike. Across that tightrope, and he gets to the other side safely. Interestingly, the word safely is a synonym for salvation. Agreed? Next, he carries out a kitchen stove, cooks himself a nine-course meal safely. Next thing he does is he walks across that tightrope on stilts, blindfolded. Here's the crazy thing. I think this story is true. So you're all laughing like this is the crazy story. It's true. Look it up. Then, after all that, you thought that was unthinkable enough, right? You thought you're in the crowd. You're watching this. You're gasping for air as he's doing. You are afraid for him. You're trying to get some faith that this guy's going to stay alive, right? You've been watching him do this, and you are awestruck what he is doing on this tightrope. And if all those things that he did wasn't good enough, the next thing he does is absolutely unstinking thinkable. Grabs a wheelbarrow, pushes it across safely on the tightrope, gets to the other side where you're at, sets it down. Hey, do you believe that I can push you inside this wheelbarrow across that tightrope safely? And the answer is, absolutely. I believe you can do it, right? I've, I've watched you do all those powerful things. I've heard stories. I've seen it happen. I'm right here. I'm witnessing it. I believe you can get me to the other side safely. But the real question is, do you trust him to get you to the other side safely? And that trust is exhibited by the way that you get off your feet and into that wheelbarrow and let him push you across that tightrope to the other side safely. That's faith. Even the demons believe that God can do what he says he can do, but they don't trust him. Faith without belief is not faith. And faith without trust is not faith, my friends. True faith is believing that God can and will and then trusting him to do it by getting in the wheelbarrow. 
How does that jack you up to live your life this week? Oh, man. I want to go charge the gates of hell like a madman with a squirt gun, right? <sighs> right? That's the essence of faith. Faith is believing and trusting all smashed together into one gigantic hairball that's really hard to swallow. Let me ask you, can you muster up that kind of believing and trusting? Can you muster up that kind of faith on your own? Can you work for it? Can you create it? Can you produce it? Can you put in enough hours to make that happen? Can you say enough prayers? Can you go to church enough times? Can you give enough money? Can you lead enough small groups? Can you be in enough small groups? Can you stop sinning in that way enough to muster up this kind of faith? Can you do that? No, you can't. And here's the reason why you and I are broken. I can't do this. You want to know why? I'm too much of a coward to do this. That's the reality. Too much of a coward. I'm too much of a poser, too much of a people pleaser at the end of the day. I'd rather settle for seeming to be a faith-filled, courageous man instead of actually becoming a faith-filled, courageous man. This is why I need Jesus to do this work in me. If I look to myself to muster up the kind of believing and trusting faith that it takes to get into that wheelbarrow with Jesus on that tightrope, I will fail every time because the faith that I'm conjuring up inside of me is placed in me. I become the object of my faith. And faith is only as authentic, powerful as the object which it is placed in. So if faith is only as good or as strong or as authentic as the object in which it is placed in, then how, still trying to answer this question, right? How do I get me some of that good old-fashioned faith. How do you get it? How do we get that? This is where one of my favorite passages of all times comes into play. So instructive. So good. Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews says this, verses 1 through 3. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Oh, now we know what it is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Other words, faith that believes and trusts is assured and it is certain, absolutely certain of things hoped for that are not seen. That kind of faith, that kind of faith that believes and trusts, it's enabled, it is enabled by the word of God. And the word of God became flesh. Oh, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And his name is Jesus. Think about that. That's not all. The author of Hebrews continues for the rest of that chapter, right? Chapter 11 continues for the rest of that chapter using people of the Old Testament like Abel and Enoch and, and Abraham and Moses and Noah and many others all throughout this chapter to illustrate what faith looks like in the life of a believer. And then in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, the author of Hebrews says something else that I love so much. Therefore, oh, there's that word therefore. Therefore, because of this definition of faith and because of all these illustrations of what faith looks like in 
people. Therefore, because of all that, now, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cleans so closely like cockleburs on your pants when you're running through the trees. Cleans so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to who? Looking to Jesus, the founder or author, the founder or author and perfecter of our faith. So who does the work to make our faith perfect? Who actually writes the book of faith upon our hearts? Not you, not me. Guess who? Jesus. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, we sang about that today. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you catch what I'm getting at here? Don't miss this. Who founded your faith? Who wrote the book of faith upon your heart? Who makes my faith work perfectly? The, the answer overwhelmingly, like I said, is Jesus. He wrote the book of my faith. He causes my faith to work perfectly. He is the one who creates the ability to believe and to trust him in a way that creates the pipeline for the free gift of God's grace that leads me to the free gift of salvation. The entire package, my friends, the entire package is one great, big, overwhelming gift of grace and faith and salvation. Here's what happens. We oftentimes think, oh man, the free gift of grace, man, it's so awesome. The free gift of salvation, that's so awesome. But when it comes to faith, we start thinking we have to do something to get the faith, to get the grace, to get the salvation. And that's a problem. It will leave you in spiritual darkness if you believe that, if you trust in that. You've got to start seeing that salvation and grace and faith are all gifts from God. None of it began with me. It all began with God. That's why verse 4 Back up in Ephesians 2, verse 4 from last week, so important because it tells us that when we've screwed it all up, when we've lacked in our faith, and we've failed over and over and over and over again, when we do that, we can come back to the truth, that the biggest truth in all of scriptures that you and I need to preach to ourselves daily are two words. You know what those two words are? But God. But God. But God gave me the gift of salvation, the free gift of salvation by free and unearned or unmerited grace. But God gave me the gift of salvation through the pipeline of faith. But God is the one who wrote the book of faith upon my heart. But God is the one who will sustain my faith perfectly until the end. And the last question is, is how, how do these two words, but God, become tangible for us? How do we grab a hold of it? How do we latch onto it? How do we grow in receiving the gift of salvation by grace through faith? How? How? The answer, my friends, is this. Simple and it's attainable. We grow in receiving this gift by simply looking to the cross of Christ. It's simple. We do this by looking to the cross of Christ where he joyfully endured the cross on our behalf. Where he joyfully despised the shame for us. Jesus went to the cross so that we 
could become grace-covered, faith-filled, saved children of the Most High God who are seated on the throne in heaven with our Papa God. He's our daddy if he saved you. All this has happened because we've been united to Christ in his death and his resurrection and his glorification. The cross is where we experience the gift of grace, my friends. The cross is where we meet the face of grace, Jesus Christ. The cross is where we find the object of our faith. The cross is where we get into the wheelbarrow of believing and trusting in the person and the work and the author and the perfecter of our faith. Cross is where we received the gift of salvation by God's grace through the pipeline of faith. I'm going to conclude here in just a moment, but when I woke up this morning, it was still dark and it was cold. One of my disciplines over the last few months since coming back from sabbatical over the summer has been to dive into a new psalm on Sunday mornings, a new psalm. And then I'd spend the entire week in that psalm letting God speak to me. A lot of reasons that I've done that. This morning, this morning I woke up with a lot of things on my mind. It's been a busy weekend. And uh, I got up this morning, I stood on my front porch, and I had a, a, a gazillion things rolling through my head and my heart. I wasn't even in a place yet where I was even thinking, I want to spend time with Jesus right now. I just simply walked out there to get a breath of fresh air. And I was standing there, and I'm listening to the things going on in my head, and I'm thinking through, i got to print this, i got to create that, i got to post the blog post, i got to get my sermon done, i got to get my Bible, oh, my Bible's in the truck. And in the midst of all of this happening, suddenly, from deep down within me, these words came out, I love you, Dad. And I didn't. That thought and that prayer came up from within me apart from anything that I could have done to have contrived it. It just, it just happened. The Spirit of God was, was praying from within me to my Father, my Dad in heaven. And in that moment, everything else went away. It was, I, it was as though I heard my Father from heaven speaking words of kindness and grace and love over me that I needed to hear. That's my desire for you. You would experience the presence of your Father in that way. For the gift of salvation is given to us by God's free grace and is received through the pipeline of faith. All of this was made possible by a loving Father who sent His Son to the cross. And then by His Spirit, as the wind blows, and I can't see it, blows through, speaks things to your heart. Pray in these moments that He would do that each and every one of us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Nine words. 
nine glorious words, right, that when contemplated and digested and moved from the headspace of our thinking into the heart space of our desires and our affections and our longings, has the power to transform the hand space of a believer's life radically. Nine words distilled into three words, the word for, the word grace, and the word faith. Nine words distilled into three words that teach every one of us to look to Christ because he is the face of grace and the author of faith and the means of our salvation. This is the good news of the gospel. The gift of salvation is given to us by God's free grace and is received through the pipeline of faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this word. And I thank you so much for the move of your spirit in this room today as I have preached. God, I sense an overwhelming extra a dose of your provision in our time together this morning. I'm so grateful to you for that. And I pray, God, that you would revive dead hearts and make us alive. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would take hearts that are alive and do the work of change and transformation through your work of grace. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.